Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 11, the same passage we looked at last week, in which I really exposited last week, but I want to spend a little more time thinking about, meditating upon, and making application. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we think about your word, what it is the apostle is saying to us here in Hebrews 5, what it is that your spirit through him is speaking to us, that you would enlighten our minds and you would transform our hearts, that we would want to know you, that we would want to hear you speak in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a, as a committed Protestant pastor who wholeheartedly believes that the Bible is sufficient for Christian life and doctrine, I, I do not want to give you the impression that we read the Bible like some kind of textbook and then we pray in response to that textbook, like some sort of ritualized response. My fear is that as Protestants who hold this book up and say, this book can be understood, there is a hermeneutic, a, a, an art and science to reading it properly, to understanding it properly. There is a, a way to properly systematize, to understand the theology of this book and what God is saying with one voice from book to book across the panoply of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. There is a proper way to understand what God is saying in His Word. There is a way to understand how the church has looked at that for centuries and come to basic agreements upon um, those doctrines and to just sort of ferret all that out and look at all of that, and that's all important, so that we can understand what the truth is and what the error is, so we understand what sound doctrine is and what poisonous doctrine is. Um, that's all important so that we have a kind of mature doctrinal discernment. There's a way in which I can teach you that, and I can say that this word is true. This is where God speaks. Please don't divide the word and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is not the Bible, and the Bible is not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible. So while we can distinguish the Holy Spirit from the Bible, let's not divide the Spirit speaking from the Bible. And I can teach you all of that, and, and you can understand that, and, and you can sort of come to this sense that maybe the Bible's a textbook, and prayer is some kind of ritualized response. And I fear you may take our position... This position Protestants call sola scriptura, scripture alone. And you turn it into some kind of cold rationalism. 
You see, I, I read the Bible regularly. I, I employ a good hermeneutic, a good Bible study method. I find the pastors with the best systematic theology and the best biblical exposition to learn from, and I listen to them. I partake of the sacraments regularly. I subscribe to a robust confession, a historical one, one that stood the test of time for centuries. I practice catechism with my family. I do some good works in keeping with the faith, and that's it. That's the whole of the Christian life. That's my fear for you. I fear that you hear this and you think I'm prescribing to you some kind of cold externalism. Please hear me. I am not denouncing any of those activities, not even one of those activities. I'm denouncing the idea that they ought to be merely external activities. Look, if you're honest, if you're honest, that that's the extent of your spiritual life, then you know there's something missing. Some folks sense something is missing, and they begin to flee to the height of rationalism for safety. You would think that in cold rationalism, they would recognize something's missing, and they would look for something other than rationalism, but actually folks will recognize something's missing, and they'll drive further into rationalism. That's one kind of response. They'll go there for safety, a kind of rationalism that that really shows up in what we might call fundamentalism. It's safe. See, I can feel safe in fundamentalism because I can dot every T, um, every I, sorry, you don't dot T's, do you? I can dot every I and I can cross every T in doctrine and in life. See, I can answer every question you have from the morality of reading Harry Potter and trick-or-treating to whether to shop at Target to the moral status of dating or drinking a beer or getting vaccines or eating organic, non-GMO, gluten-free food? I can answer them all. I can tell you what kind of dancing is good, what kind of dancing is suspect. I can do it all for you, every issue in life. No need to think or apply wisdom any longer. We can just fill in the blank on every question you have. See, if you have a question, the fundamentalist has a judgment for you on that question, ready at hand. They can tell you which way to school your kids and which curriculum you ought to use. There remains no need for wisdom. We have an answer for every question. And let's face it, this kind of approach to life is likely appealing to us all. If it's not appealing to you at all, I, I wonder if you're honest with yourself. I've watched numerous homeschool families, and I'm not picking on homeschool families because I'm opposed to homeschool families. This is just the story as it goes. We homeschooled, just so you know. But I've watched numerous homeschool families in the past running down this road. Um, I did so really just over a decade ago. And I wondered how long it would be, not that homeschool started over a decade ago, but my particular experience I saw, I wondered how long it would be for those particular families before things began to unwind and fall apart spiritually. I won't name them, but... I saw them living with a kind of fundamentalist rationalism in the way they approached their lives. 
looking for safety where it can't be found. And sadly, it didn't take long as their kids aged. Many of them fell apart as they found the safety that they longed for was actually a farce. They figured out that the enemy they feared was in their own homes. The enemy was not just out there in the world, though the enemy was out there in the world. The enemy was in their own hearts and in the hearts of their children. But there is an opposite error, isn't there? There's an opposite error. That something that, that, that what that something is that's missing in our intimacy with the Lord, it will often drive us, if it doesn't, to a kind of fundamentalist rationalism, it'll drive us to an opposite error. Um, some folks running down that road will run toward a, a charismatic theology because they desire a warm experience of God. And who can blame them? Who doesn't desire a warm experience of the Lord? And they don't really believe the Bible's sufficient to that end, so they need God to speak externally to the Bible in addition. They want a personal and subjective experience of God moving or speaking to them outside of His Word. See, other folks, though, don't look to the charismatic movement for this subjective experience. They look to a kind of Eastern mysticism. That's on the rise now for this in this world. Many people go from really one pole, fundamentalist rationalism, to the other pole, a kind of charismatic mysticism. And they just run back and forth. Either way, though, people desire some kind of intimacy with the Lord, which they think they cannot find in the Bible. And they believe this intimacy with the Lord, this close fellowship, will provide a sense of of assurance, a sense of security, As it stands, their prayer lives are weak. Their affections toward God are distant and cold. Their fleshly passions are continually aroused toward worldliness and sin. And God's law sounds oppressive and burdensome rather than delightful. These Christians on both poles which I imagine if we're honest with ourselves, most of us bounce back and forth between one pole or the other. These Christians on both poles suffer from immaturity in their Christian lives. I imagine folks in our church tend to run toward a kind of rationalistic fundamentalism in their immaturity. This isn't a church where people tend to run toward subjective, experiential, kind of mystical, charismatic theology. Um, they, but they will tend to more than often than not run toward a kind of rationalistic fundamentalism. And some of our folks are actually recovering charismatics who are now running to a rationalistic fundamentalism. They've just flipped the coin. I say that because many folks here have the bent toward being Bible students. I want to be a Bible student and I want to be a learner of doctrine. If the church has a Bible study, I want to go. If the church doesn't have enough Bible studies, I'll add. I'll go to community Bible study or Bible study fellowship. I, I, if that's not enough, I'll listen to podcasts every day of a variety of sorts. I'm a Bible student. I want to learn doctrine. And folks, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. You should want to learn the Bible. 
please do not hear me in any way, shape, or form denouncing your passion to learn the Bible. You ought to listen to it every chance you get. Listen to the Bible read to you. Read the Bible. Listen to the Bible preached to you by solid preachers. Go to Bible studies. Be in the Word every single chance you get. I'm not denouncing that. It's a good thing. But it can also be a dangerously misleading thing. And it may surprise you to hear me say that. But there can be and often is a pervasive immaturity among those who are the most doctrinally well-informed. What drives that kind of pervasive Christian immaturity? Well, it's not listening to the Lord with faith, repentance, and obedience. But I want to press that a little further as I think there's a discipline that's often absent from our listening. In other words, what I'm saying is you can listen and formulate your doctrine and become quite good at all of that and still be immature as a Christian, as to godliness, as to personal piety. It's because you don't listen in a particular way, i.e. with faith, repentance, and obedience. Maybe you listen with great intellectual curiosity, with a sharp mind ready to dismember the person who argues with you on social media or at coffee, to be able to spot every error so you can feel safe knowing you're not in one of them. But you're not actually learning the Bible and learning doctrine so that you might know the Lord. There's a discipline, I think, that we all find to be largely absent from our life that's probably the major culprit in this problem. So I'm saying there's something absent from most of our lives that probably drives this problem in us. So what's absent? Meditation. Meditation. We do not obey God's command. Please hear that. We do not obey God's command to meditate on his word. I hope you caught that. Meditation is commanded. And we fail in obeying this command. In fact, we often fail so utterly in meditation that even using the word meditation makes folks fear, especially the fundamentalists in the room, that I'm about to introduce some kind of Eastern mystical practice. Some kind of Zen Buddhism or mindfulness or yoga or something of that sort. Yes, there are people who practice ungodly meditation and yoga. Deal with it. Some don't. They just stretch. Whatever. Stretch. Just stretch. But I'm talking about the meditation portion of this. I want you to see that meditation is biblically commanded and that apart from meditation, Christian maturity will not come as it ought. You won't grow in maturity. So look at Hebrews 5.11. About this, we have much to say. What's the this? The this is about Christ as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. In other words, the apostle's telling us, I have more to say about this, and he's actually going to pick it up, that more to say in chapter 7. But for now, he's saying, I have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Is it hard to explain because doctrinally it's so lofty that none of us can in any way, shape, or form grab hold of it? No, it's 
hard to explain since you, look at the phrase, you have become dull of hearing. You're a, as I said last week, a lazy listener. But he does not mean lazy, you're a lazy listener in the sense that you do not hear the information. And this is what I did not want you to misunderstand last week. He doesn't mean you're a lazy listener in the sense that you all fail to study your Bible. That's not what he means. It's not just, well, you failed to do real rigorous Bible study. So you're off the hook. If you came to my Greek class and you started doing all your exegesis from the Greek grammar and you're feeling pretty good about your Bible study efforts, that does not mean you're not lazy in this sense of laziness. He says, You're lazy in the sense that you do not hear the information, what he's getting at, with faith, repentance, and obedience. You're not actually meditating on what I'm saying. It's not your delight. It doesn't lead you to worship. It doesn't draw you closer in intimacy with the Lord. You're just taking in information. Sometimes you're lazy in the sense you don't even listen at all. You don't pay any attention. You don't study hard to show yourself approved. But sometimes your laziness is you're quite an academically bent person. You're very intellectually curious. You line it all up, but you still aren't devoted to the Lord. You're not listening in the sense that your heart is being warmed toward Him and you want to worship. He actually compares their laziness to eating a meal. Did you notice that? You failed to grow up in your eating, he says. You failed to grow up in your eating so that you cannot consume a rich meal. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child or an infant. Please understand this. The accusation is not simply that you fail to learn sound doctrine, but that you fail to chew it. To really personally know it. To mature so that you can discern, in verse 14, good from evil. evil. Look at verse 14. For solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. He doesn't want you just to discern truth from error, but good from evil. He's saying, I want you to eat and enjoy good food. I want you to despise and reject poison. Thus, listening here is compared to eating and the word of God to good food or drink. Keep your hand there and look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Look at verse 1. Keep your hand in Hebrews 5, but look at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live 
and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, here's hearing the word is compared to eating a meal, to drinking um, wine or milk, or you'll hear in other instances in Scripture, it's like the thirsty man who needs his thirst quenched, so he comes to the water of the word. Or you'll hear Jesus say something like, quoting um, from the Old Testament, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. See, we are not supposed, supposed to just gather information and learn facts. We're supposed to consume the word. We see it as our sustenance. We see it as our life. We see it as our delight. That's why you'll often see um, prophets in the Old Testament, the prophet will eat the scroll. And you're like, why is he eating the scroll? He's being commanded to eat it. Why is he eating it? Because it's the prophet's not just to deliver some information. He's supposed to consume that, to, to meditate on it, to think about it, to consider it. We don't just gather information. We consume the word. We see it as our sustenance, as our life, our delight. We listen in such a way that we chew on the word. We think about it. We gaze long at it. We consider it. We stew on it. We delight in it. We, in other words, meditate. We meditate. Think of reading the Bible like coming into a room with a beautifully appointed meal. Right? I mean, we're about to come to one of those meals, at least in some of our households, there will be a beautifully appointed meal at Thanksgiving, right? Some of us will buy takeout, and that'll be that. But, but most of us work quite hard as families to have this beautifully appointed meal, and there's this huge spread laid out before you. Now imagine you come um, to this beautifully appointed meal, and, and I want you to think about this like, like reading your Bible, like hearing a sermon, like doing a Bible study. You come to this beautifully appointed meal. Everything's there. You see the meal. You smell the meal. You may even have some taste of the flavor of the meal. That's like reading your Bible, studying your Bible, listening to some good sermon. So hearing the word taught, reading the word, studying the word, is like coming to the beautiful meal and seeing it, smelling it. Now think of meditation as actually eating the meal, chewing it, digesting it, taking it in so that the meal does you some actual good. Think of prayer then like responding to the one who prepared the meal with great appreciation and thanksgiving and like asking for seconds, in fact. Asking them to keep feeding you because you want more of that rich food. Listen, you can see the meal and smell the meal and never benefit from the meal. You can know all about the meal. You can get the meal exactly right. You can describe the meal. You can tell me which items on the table are good food and which ones are poison. You've been around your family long enough to know, right? You know. You can do all that. You can systematize it. You can tell us everything about it. That's true with your Bible reading and with your Bible study. That's true with listening to sermons. The best sermons you ever hear, that's true with. You can treat it all like information you're gathering and learning, and that's it. 
When the author of Hebrews is telling you to listen, to not be slothful in hearing, he's calling you to more than Bible reading or listening to sermons. He's calling you to more than getting your doctrine straight. He's not calling you to less than getting your doctrine right. He's calling you to more than getting your doctrine right. He's calling you to meditation, to consuming the meal, to eating it, chewing it, digesting it. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, I'm just going to show you some of these texts. The, The apostle here gives us exposition of doctrine, and then he gives us application, if you will, or exhortation. Here's what you do. You've just heard the doctrine. Now, here's the exhortation. You ready? Heard the doctrine in chapter 1 about Christ being greater than angels, Moses, etc. Now, here's the exhortation. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. To pay closer attention is to think about it, to ruminate on it, to consider it, to listen to it, to obey it. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, to consider him, to think about him, to think about his person and his work and who he is and what he's done and how that matters to me. Think about it. Stew on it. Ruminate on it. Meditate upon it. Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Hebrews and verse 1. I just picked a few of them. There's more, but after reading about this, what we call a faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the Old Testament saints who were looking forward to the Messiah in faith, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those Old Testament saints... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, how do we run the race? Look at the word. Looking to Jesus. Look at him. Consider him. Think about him. Look at him. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at him. Consider his person. Consider his work. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Think about him. Think about his work on your behalf, his cross work for you. Think about him. Look at him. Consider him. Think about his ascension to the right hand of God where he rules and reigns and ever intercedes from you. Consider him. Consider the way he he endured hostility from other people. And follow that example. That's what we're to do. It's not just seeing and smelling the meal. It's not just taking a little sample of the meal. It's not just analyzing the meal for its health benefits and good taste so that we might commend the host and seem like polite company. This is eating the meal, chewing it, digesting it, allowing it to benefit us. See, you must not be a lazy listener. You must meditate. Meditate. You must think, consider, chew, digest. You you, you consume the word sort of like someone who is um, letting tea steep in water. You don't take out hot water, sort of 
drop the bag of tea in there real quick and pull it out real fast. Say, I got tea. You let it steep in the water until you have a good cup of tea. You think of meditation like that. You don't just take the word, toss it up in your mind real quick, hear what it says, read it, and then move on. You let it steep in your mind and your heart. It changes you. Look at, look at Joshua chapter 1. Meditation is a command throughout Scripture, by the way. It's a command we don't pay a lot of attention to generally in our day. Um, but you guys know the story of Joshua. Joshua is leading the second generation of Israel. Caleb and Joshua are the two faithful men from the first generation of Israel, leading the second generation of Israel into the promised land. The first generation dies just outside of the promised land. He's now leading the second generation into the promised land. And as he's getting that mantle, if you will, handed to him from Moses, the Lord speaks to him and encourages him about going forward. And look at the Lord's command in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Now, he's already told him, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'll be with you. That's the promise that then is attended by this command. Be strong and courageous. For you will cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. See, I'll be with you. I'll keep my promise. So be strong and courageous. Now look what he says. Only be strong and courageous, verse 7. Now how is that strength and courage going to show up? How does it show up? Verse 7 being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, now pay attention, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Listen, I've made promises to be with you. I'll be with you. I've made promises to give you the land. I will keep my promise to deliver the land. Now I want you, Joshua, to be strong and courageous. How do you do that? Keep the law. Now how do you keep the law? You're not going to keep it if you're not meditating on it day and night. If it's not ever in your mouth. It's when you're meditating on it that you're going to then be careful to do it. And when you're careful to do it, then your way in which I commanded you to go will prosper. Now you might start hearing echoes of Psalm 1 there, don't you? Which I'll turn to in a minute. But we see this in Colossians 3, for example. Set your mind on things above. Remember that language? See it in 1 Peter or excuse me, 2 Peter 1.19, set your mind on things above. To meditate is to set your mind somewhere. To let your mind rest there. To think about that. Meditate on my law day and night. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. Look to him. Consider him. Think about him. In fact, Scripture shows us Um, that there's both evil meditation and godly meditation. You aware of that? Evil and godly meditation both exist. We do both. If you're a Christian, then you both probably participate in evil meditation and godly meditation. Both kind of meditations are referenced in Scripture, and both are tied to what 
you find delightful. You hear that? Both are tied to what you find delightful. Meditation is tied to delight, always. Always tied to delight. If I love something, I meditate on it. And as I meditate on it, my love for that thing grows. Meditation and delight always come together. We meditate on what we love and delight in, and the more we meditate upon that thing's beauty and consider its goodness, the more we find it delightful. If I meditate on uh, my wife and I consider her beauty and goodness, my delight in her grows. If I let my meditation go toward other women, my delight for my wife diminishes and my delight for sin grows. We're delighted in sin. You guys follow me on that? What I meditate on, I delight in the things I meditate on, and I meditate on the things I delight in. And when I meditate, my delight increases. When we find something desirable, we meditate on that thing, and our desire and delight in that thing grows. When we meditate on lies, when we meditate on the lusts of the world, then our delight in those things grow. When we meditate on the truth, when we meditate on the kindness of God, when we meditate on the person and work, the beauty of our Savior, our delight in Him grows. Look at Genesis chapter 3. I want to show you this meditation and delight connection with regard to evil meditation. Wicked, sinful meditation. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I point you to the beginning here because God has spoken and um, now the serpent is speaking. The godly, wise voice has come to them, and now the evil, wicked voice is being heard by them. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now listen to his message. For God knows that what you, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice what's happening here. She's hearing the word of the Lord. She's heard the word of the Lord. She's hearing the word of the serpent and she's meditating upon the word of the serpent. And as she is, she's seeing the delightfulness of his wicked message. That fruit looks delightful. The idea that I would know what the Lord knows, that I would be like him, sounds fantastic. And she meditates on this until she consumes it. That's wicked meditation. Eve is meditating on the word of the serpent and finding delight in his wicked counsel. Look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Let's look at the opposite kind of meditation. 
the first psalm. It's not really Psalm chapter 1. You guys know Psalm doesn't really have chapters. Just there's psalms. So the first psalm, Psalm 1. Now we can see this all over the psalms, but I'll only end up looking at two. Psalm 1, look at verse 1. Blessed is the man. Now who is the blessed man? I want you to hear this. And why is he blessed? Please pay attention. Ask the question, why is this man blessed? What does it mean that his way is prosperous? You're going to hear that. Who is he? Blessed is the man. Now here comes the negatives. Here's what this man does not do. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't walk on the wicked's path. He doesn't walk after the wicked's wisdom, nor stands in the way of sinners. He doesn't stand where the sinners stand in life, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, the blessed man is not meditating upon the wicked wisdom of the world. He's not meditating upon that. Now look at the next phrase. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And here the law is referencing the whole of the word of God at that point. The Torah, the first five books. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law. And so what does he do? His delight is in God's word and not the world's word. And so he doesn't meditate upon what the world has to say. He meditates on what the Lord has to say. And so he grows in his delight. And therefore, look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, that doesn't mean he prospers financially and in health. It's talking about prospering in godliness. Eternal prospering. How do I know that? You keep going. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You see where he's going for prospering and not prospering? They won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Note how the blessed man is not listening to the counsel of the wicked. He's not meditating upon it. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Why is he blessed? He's not blessed because of his station in life, nor because of his success. He is blessed because of what he delights in and meditates upon. And this kind of meditation leads to godly practice or living. Look at Psalm 119 and verse 97. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 97. You'll see the connection made directly there. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It's because it's his meditation all the day that he can say this, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. See, the truly wise man is not the man who's most educated. The truly wise man is the man whose testimonies, where where God's testimonies is always with him. Always. All the day. I understand more than the aged. 
the elderly. For I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every way, evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. You see, I have learned that your word is wisdom and that it's sweet. And so I meditate on it day and night. I consume it. I have learned that the way of the wicked is something to be despised and hated This isn't just an Old Testament command, though. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Paul's going to say the same thing. Many of you are very familiar with this text. Understand he's talking about meditation. Philippians chapter 4, we'll just look at verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Consider them. Meditate upon them. Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Godly meditation leads to further delight in the Lord, the rejection of sin, and the practicing of righteousness. Why does meditation lead to godly practice? Why does meditation lead to a richer prayer life? Because the Holy Spirit uses this means of grace to grow our delight in the Lord and His Word. It isn't an automatic thing where I just apply the formula and I just develop into full maturity. Done. That would be nice. We'd love that. But it's I discipline myself to meditate, to think on these things. And the Holy Spirit uses this means of grace to grow my delight in Him and His Word. The Puritans wrote a lot about meditation. One of them said this, that, that reading the Bible is like bringing coals to the fire right? Reading the Bible is like bringing coals to the fire, and meditation is like making the fire and fanning the flame. I fear many of us bring stacks of coals to the fire and wonder why it never warms our hearts, why it never fans to flame our delight in the Lord and His Word. So you can see that when you hear a good sermon or read a biblical passage, and your response is is kind of indifferent. You hear a great sermon, you walk out and you say, what'd you think about that sermon? What'd you think about that Bible passage you read? What'd you think about that lecture in the uh, theology or the Bible that guy gave? And you walk away kind of indifferently and you say, you know, I already knew that. I didn't learn anything new. There's nothing new here to me. Listen, folks, that's never the response God's word ought to elicit. I didn't learn anything new. Well, then you missed the point of why you were there, didn't you? We don't come to the Word of God to tickle intellectual curiosity and continually learn new information. We come to the Word of God to hear from God and to be reminded as He speaks. 
I fear we hold the right doctrines, but feel spiritually distant from God and morally impotent to stand against the lusts of the world because we don't meditate on His Word day and night. I think we see this showing up in our own church and in the godless culture in general. Look, we're so distant from God as a culture, so absent the intimacy we find only in Him, that we're now pressing a secularized form of Buddhist meditation in every public school. Do you know that? It's all the range. It rage. It's, it's called mindfulness, and it's just an attempt to take Buddhist meditation and secularize it. It's teach the kids to focus on the present moment and their own thoughts. Um, need to go away and need to think about their breathing. Breathe in, breathe out, concentrate, be present at the moment, think about your breathing. Empty your mind of everything else. Be present. There's so many elements in that that are getting at something good. But it's ultimately empty. Because meditation is never about emptying your mind. It's about filling your mind with truth. Yeah, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus says, be present in the moment. Don't worry about tomorrow. But it doesn't say, don't worry about tomorrow. Think about your breathing. Right? Don't worry about tomorrow. And then he stops and says, meditate. Meditate. Consider the birds of the air. That's a word for meditate. Consider the birds of the air. You're meditating now on nature. Consider the birds of the air. They don't gather up in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more will he care for you? Stop worrying. Be present in the moment. Meditate. Consider Consider the lilies of the field. Look at them. They're, they, they don't clothe themselves, yet they're arrayed in more splendor than, than Solomon. How much more will your heavenly Father clothe you? Meditate upon his works and his word. The world just has a, an empty substitute for that. Mindfulness, as well as other syncretized forms of Eastern meditation, are making their way into the church. They're showing up, it's showing up at Christian schools, Christian conferences. It's in Christian books. There's a whole wellness movement. You guys notice that? Everything's about wellness now. There's a whole wellness movement that touches the church, which is largely predicated upon syncretism of Eastern philosophy and secularism that is growingly popular. Listen, I don't I don't bring these things up to hammer public schools or to hammer those running after Eastern meditation or trying to find the answer in the wellness movement or essential oils or whatever it is. I bring it up because we know something's wrong. We know we're unraveling as a people. It's because there are school shootings and distraught children and messed up families that the public schools are trying to figure out some way to address it. But they can't turn to the Lord, so where do they go? You understand? The motive's good. The desire to help the children is good. The answer's empty. Look, we need to slow down and meditate. That's true. But we're prescribing the wrong medication. Certainly, as a people, we're running from one moment of distraction it's, it's interesting, because though we know we need to slow down because something's wrong, we're running from one moment of a distraction to the next via social media, via devices that stream constant games and entertainment. 
anything, anything to keep from having to give our minds the opportunity to reflect, anything to avoid this unquiet mind I have. I need some distraction. Some of you look at your phones or iPads while I'm preaching because even sustaining 50-something minutes of listening is too much for my mind to reflect on. i got to run somewhere. Yet in the Christian world, we have more access to commentaries, books, sermons, Bible studies, online courses, small groups, podcasts, videocasts, YouTube content that at any time in the history of the church, ever, hands down, we have more liberty, more free time, more comfort than any Christians in the history of the world. But we're not growing any more godly. Our observance of the Lord Day is constantly interrupted with secular concerns. Some of you are checking the scores of the games while I preach. Thinking about work tomorrow while you're supposed to be hearing from the Lord. Wondering how you'll plan your day to run to your next activity. We're not experiencing more holiness or more quietness of mind. In our country as a whole, there are massive upswings of psychiatric conditions and medications. We have more suicides and drug overdoses than ever in the history of any people. This is the first time on record that a population of a nation is dropping um, at the, the age at which it dies, that that dropping, the average age at which we die, because of drug overdose and suicide. We're turning to secular therapists, pharmaceuticals, Eastern meditation, personal wellness, essential oils, and now cannabis to soothe what ails us. We are like the people in Amos, searching the world over for the voice of God, for tools for coping with our unquiet minds and our anxious hearts because we have a famine of God's word in the land. But know what I said. We have more access to teaching and Bibles than ever. The famine in our land is not driven by the lack of resources. The famine in our land is driven by our lacking godly listening and meditation. So what is our wound and what is the balm? Obviously, sin is the mortal wound that's killing us. And the gospel of grace in Christ is the balm. The word of God is the bread of life that feeds us. The water of life that satisfies us. But we do not seem to imbibe that water nor consume that bread as we should. We all all know this is true. We all know that our scripture reading and listening to sermons often just leaves us cold. We wonder if there's really much gain in listening to sermons, even really good ones. We go and read our Bibles and do our prayers, and then 15 minutes later, sin against our family members or the person on the road on the way to work. We experience a distance in our prayer lives as the Lord is either not there or if he, as if he does not speak. Why? Because I want to I argue that the major reason behind this is a failure to read the Word, meditate upon the Word, and pray in response to the Word. So how do we meditate? I want to give you six things real quick, and they're going to come at you fast because I've run out of time. We need to meditate, but how do we meditate? 
Um, I've modified some steps given by Thomas Watson, but turn to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. How do we do this? It's nice. We don't meditate. So what do we do about it? We meditate. What does that look like? How do we do it? Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He gave four steps. I've kind of broken a couple of those out, and I'm going to give you six. It's a modification of what he provided in his work. Look with me at 1 Timothy 4. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. First step, we begin with reading the Word. First step of meditation, read the Word or hear it taught. Right? I don't care if you're hearing it taught via a sermon or you're reading it straight up. Um, do something like that. That's where you begin. Read it, hear it taught, hear it read to you. There are audio Bible apps now. You can hear it read to you. Thomas Watson said this, reading does furnish with matter. It is the oil that feeds the lamp of meditation. Be sure your meditations are founded upon scripture. Reading without meditation is unfruitful. Meditation without reading is dangerous. Look, when Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air, he then tells you how to consider them. I'm not telling you go out and consider nature and come up with doctrine. That's a bad idea. Consider nature. Consider God's work. But it needs to be, our meditation needs to be governed by Scripture. It's Bible-saturated meditation. Now, my meditation is always governed by Scripture, but it's not always limited to Scriptures, to the Scripture. Jesus tells me to meditate upon God's creation, to meditate on God's providential working. But when I meditate upon God's works, and I think about him in his works, that needs to be governed always by the word of God. So my meditation always begins with the word and is always governed by the word. Second, so you not only need to begin with reading, you need to commit to meditation. So begin with reading, commit to meditating. Look at verse 15 of 1 Timothy 4. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Practice these things. An interesting word in Greek, it really translated to to think about them, to consider them. The next phrase, immerse yourself, is actually a variation of the to be verb. Um, And the reason I say that is because it's like saying be in them, right? What are them? The public reading of Scripture, exhortation, teaching, consider it, meditate on it. Be in it. Immerse yourself is the best word we call it, like diving into it. Think about the Word. Be in the Word. Meditate upon the Word. Feed on it. Take it in yourself. Don't just read a chapter and go, that did me no good. Read a chapter and then start meditating on what God is saying. Third, we narrow our meditation to something seasonable or at least something reasonable. I didn't mean to make a rhyme there. Sorry. We want, to med- we want to narrow our meditation. So read the Word, then meditate on the Word, uh, commit to meditating, and then third, narrow your meditation, what you meditate on, to something seasonable. For example, if your spouse just died, probably don't meditate on Ephesians 5 and the glory of marriage. Probably not the best choice that day. Maybe that's the day to meditate on 1 Thessalonians 4 and death and resurrection and heaven. So it's a seasonable meditation. 
You meditate on those things you need in particular seasons to meditate upon. It's also reasonable. What I mean by that is you want to narrow down what you meditate on to something that's actually able to be meditated upon. Like if you read three chapters, you just went and read Ephesians 1 through 3. Okay? Go read Ephesians 1 through 3. There is way more there to think about than you possibly have a chance to consider on one particular morning, one particular day, maybe more than you can consider in one particular week. Even if you were doing it full time, there is a mountain of doctrine there. So you're going through Ephesians 1 through 3 and you say, what am I going to meditate on? And you narrow it down. I'll give you an example. One author gave the example. You pick up something like Ephesians 1, 7, where it says, we've received redemption and forgiveness of our trespasses in him. So I begin to think about the heinousness of my sin. I ask the Lord to show me any wicked way in me. I think about the many ways I've transgressed the law. I think of how my own heart is too wicked for me to know, and so my own sin is worse than I even know. And I actually self-examine and consider what ways in which I've transgressed against God's law so that Christ would have to redeem me and forgive me. And I think about those things. But then I think second about the fact that I have redemption and forgiveness in Him. So I think about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. I think about how his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for me. I think of how he purchased me with his own blood. I think of how his blood is sufficient to cover all my sins. Even the ones I just listed. And then I start asking questions like, why, O Lord, such love to me? And so that brings me to the last phrase in that verse, according to the riches of his grace. How bountiful must his grace be? How free and unmerited is his grace that he would give himself for me? And that drives me to consider the kindness and love and grace of the Father in giving his Son for me, who even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, that drives me to consider that the Son laid down his life of his own accord. I consider that he lavished grace upon me, that he showed me this love because of his great love for me, a love that is eternally and freely set upon me. And then I want to break out with Paul and sing the doxology that he begins to sing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then I'm found in prayer giving thanks, aren't I? Fourth, make resolutions in response to your meditation. So read the Word, commit to meditating on it, narrow it down what you're meditating on. Fourth, make resolutions in response to it. See, now I want to live differently. I want to walk with Him. My affections are stirred toward Him. My distaste for the world grows, and I make resolutions as to how today will be lived with Him differently than the catalog of sins I just went through from yesterday. So I make resolutions about my life going forward, and I begin to practice those things. But as I grow in my delight in the Lord and in my desire to honor Him, I also feel helpless to keep such resolve. Which leads to my fifth point, prayer. We pray in response to God's Word and our need for Him. I give thanks to the Lord. I sing to Him. I ask Him to help me to pour out the riches of His grace upon me that I might walk in godliness. 
I pray that he would help me to know how deep and wide are his love for me and for his church to help me fully repent of my sin and to keep my commitments to resolve to walk differently. And I ask him for that in prayer. See, from reading the Bible to meditating upon it to prayer. Sixth, we, we commit to meditation as a daily discipline. Here's the last point I want to make. We commit to it as a daily discipline. How many times a day? I mean, the Puritans were big on morning and evening. That's good. But daily. What time of the day? The Puritans liked early morning and late at night because they thought you were less distracted with the day's concerns. They thought you'd start the day off right and that you'd end the day right. Great. They didn't say, though, this is a hard and fast law. When you can find time to read the Bible, meditate, and pray, do it. Every day. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also life to come. So you commit to it as a daily discipline. The fact is that meditation may be the most difficult of all spiritual disciplines. Do you know that? In fact, I can't think of a harder spiritual discipline than meditation. I have so many distractions so many excuses, so many reasons to avoid it. It can sound like a burden rather than a joy. But I need to discipline myself to this end. I need to recognize it's hard. I need to recognize I won't be good at it initially. And then I need to do it again and again, day after day, whether I feel like it or not. So how long do I meditate for? 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours? Listen, meditate, um, maybe I should say it this way, fan the flame until you feel its warmth. That's how long you meditate for. Fan the flame until you feel its warmth. You brought the coals to the fire when you read. The coals are there, now fan the flame. Stay meditating until you feel its warmth. Almost never begin God's word reading by feeling its warmth. Almost never. I nearly always begin feeling distant, distracted, and disinterested. And I'm a full-time pastor. <laughs> I try to stay in the Word, bringing coals of the fire and fanning the, flame, fanning the flame, chewing on it, considering it, thinking about the Lord, thinking about my sin, thinking about my grace, until I feel the warmth of God near to me. We don't just want to see a meal. We want to chew it and digest it. We want to think on these things. We want to meditate. You ought to do that in your own reading. You ought to do that with regard to your grace group lesson. You ought to do that with regard to the sermons you hear. Take time to meditate until you feel the warmth of that fire burning. The coals have been brought to the fire. Are you ready to fan the flame? Listen to what Thomas Watson said about this. Without meditation, the truth of God will not stay with us. The heart is hard. And the memory's slippery. Anybody notice that? And without meditation, all is lost. Meditation imprints and fastens a truth in the mind. Without meditation, the truths which we know will never affect our hearts. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. How can the word be in the heart unless it be wrought in by meditation? As a hammer drives a nail to the head, so meditation drives a truth to the heart. Without meditation, the word preached may increase notion or knowledge, not affection 
or love. Meditation fetches life in a truth. There are many truths lie, as it were, in the heart dead. Many truths that lie in the heart dead, which when we meditate upon, they begin to have light and heat in them. So I pray that we would be a people who meditate on His Word. Father, we are thankful that You have spoken in Your Word, most clearly in Your Son and by Your Spirit. We pray that we would receive Your Word as a delight upon which we meditate, not just as information that we try to categorize and know in a notional sense, but that we know in an affectional sense that we see the truth of your word driven into our hearts by the working of your Holy Spirit through meditating upon your word. We recognize that we are not sufficient for these things, that we are feeble, we are distracted, distant, and disinterested. We are a people who are so often having our eye caught by some distraction who avoid the discipline of thinking and considering your word and how it applies to our own lives, of considering what you're doing in your works and what that tells us about you, meditating upon your love for us in the person and work of your Son, meditating upon the glories of Christ, and so delighting in Him evermore, and so practicing these things. We pray that you would work in us by your Spirit to discipline us, to not only read your word, but meditate upon it and pray in response to it and practice it because we delight in you and what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.